It's good to see you here today. It's good to welcome in those of you who are joining us online. Welcome to Freedom Online. We are uh, in a series right now that is entitled Back to Virtue as we are diving into a lot of the meat and potatoes of what does it mean to really be a follower of Christ? How is your life going to be different if you are indeed a follower of Christ? And we're looking at the fundamental virtues that define a life of faith. When somebody truly follows Christ, what are the virtues that are true of that person? And uh, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you in advance today, I was saying this with our leadership team as we were praying together this morning. Uh, my concern in diving into what we'll talk about today is that it would be uh, very tempting and easy for us to process this as a, at a head level and then never get to a heart level. Because there's going to be a lot of scripture and content for us to, to wrestle with, with at the level of just understanding it. But it's far more important that we respond to this at a heart level today. So I really want to encourage you to, to be careful to let your heart engage and constantly be asking the question, not just do I understand this, but am I letting this be a reality in my own life? Because it's going to be much safer to just think about this than to apply it as we talk today about the Christian virtue of purity. Um, I, I'm amused and understand very well what uh, St. Augustine said about uh, the virtue of purity. He's, he uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek prayed this prayer, Oh, Lord, help me to be pure, but not yet. We all sort of know that feeling, don't we? The, the virtue of purity is one of those things that, that we want, but I'm not sure I want it really badly right now because there's some stuff that I don't want to have to let go of. We live in an age today where... It feels like this is a forgotten virtue. I just remember in my own experience, when I was a child and and a teen, I remember just in church that there was constant teaching and reinforcement of the virtue of purity, and I hear almost nothing of that today. It feels like there's sort of this unspoken thing that we sort of all get it, that it's like everybody's messed up and everybody's messing up, and so... Let's just don't talk about purity because that's sort of off the table, isn't it? It's just, it isn't that sort of unrealistic that we would live truly pure lives. And I'll just tell you that what we're going to talk about today is as relevant and timely as anything that we could talk about. I think you're going to see. And, and today what I'm going to do, really, even though there's a lot of scripture and what we'll talk about, I'm really going to just talk about one verse primarily through the whole message. And it's found in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, if you want to find the richest body of teaching just in one section, one teaching that just is jam-packed with understanding who Jesus is and what his message was, the Sermon on the Mount is it. It is probably the richest treasure chest of truth. Those three chapters, a condensed Reader's Digest version of one sermon from Jesus, and he opens with the most perplexing mind-twisting part of this, we call it the Beatitudes. That sounds so sweet. It really sounds far too sweet for what Jesus says in the opening verses because he turns faith and just the way that we look at life on its ear when he says things like, you know, it, it, the Beatitudes, it's all those statements that he makes that begin with blessed are the, you know, the Lord blesses those who, other translations will say, happy are the people who, everything's blessed or happy. And then he completes all those statements with things like, he, he opens with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are absolutely impoverished in spirit, they're the happy ones. 
And we just automatically want to go, I don't think so. And he just goes you know, down the line with all of these happy are the people who, you know, those who are peacemakers, those who suffer for righteousness sake. And it just doesn't sound like it makes sense. And in the middle of the Beatitudes, Jesus makes this statement that we're going to focus on today when he says, God blesses those whose hearts are pure for they will see God. We're just going to do our best to really wrestle with that and let it sink in. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Now, the first thing that we learn as we begin to wrestle with what Jesus is saying in this beatitude is that it's not enough for us to clean up our act on the outside. Jesus clearly is concerned with our hearts. Are we in agreement on that? It is not enough just to do behavior modification. Jesus is way more concerned with our hearts, though he does care about our behavior. Jesus, you remember, was always in conflict with the religious leadership. Does that ever bother you, by the way? Does that ever worry you? I think it probably should, that it's the religious people that made Jesus the maddest consistently. We always, I think it's easy to distance ourselves from them instead of sometimes recognizing how much we may look like them at times. Jesus said to them in Matthew 23, 25, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of the religious law, you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're so careful to clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You get what he's saying there. You can clean up your act. You can look and sound great on Sunday. You can seem so spiritual through the week. But if the truth of the matter is, if your heart is still wicked and your thoughts and desires are unchanged, he says that doesn't earn you anything from God because God sees the whole of who you are. So we could say that the aim of Jesus is not primarily to reform the manners of society, but to change the hearts of sinners. Would you agree with that? That Jesus isn't trying to make of us a bunch of nice people. He's trying to change us at a heart level. I don't know that any passage drives this home more than the Sermon on the Mount does. If you read the whole of Matthew 5, he does this kind of thing again and again, like in verses 27 and 28, when he says, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. And we're pretty much good with commandments like that, right? Because that's black and white, isn't it? You're either having the sex, sex with somebody outside of marriage or you're not. Black and white. We know whether we're obeying that. And Jesus says, you're really familiar with that, but I want you to understand the whole of the idea. I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wait a minute, Jesus. That's no fun. That's suddenly far more complicated. I was feeling really good about myself as long as we just had the commandment not to sleep with somebody that we're not married to. And now you're coming in, you're, you're redrawing the lines. You're suddenly telling me I can commit adultery in my mind, in my heart, and Jesus is going right on the money. Right on the money. Your heart is where it all begins. Your heart's what it's all about. The heart is who you are at the level of your thoughts and your feelings where nobody knows but you and God. And aren't you so glad that nobody knows but you and God? And don't you wish at times even God didn't know? I mean, isn't that the real deal? That in your heart, there's stuff that goes on. There are thoughts and desires that dwell here and here that we would be mortified if anybody else could know about it. And the fact that God knows about it freaks us out to the point that we think he probably didn't like us very much. 
he just has to accept us as like stepchildren or something since he knows our hearts. And, and we know that he does. First Samuel sixteen seven reminds us, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesus said in Matthew 15, but the words that you speak come from the heart. And that's what defiles you. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Jesus said all of the stuff, all of the bad behavior that you could ever think of, the problem, the primary problem is not the behavior. The primary problem is the heart. You didn't get in trouble, first and foremost, by what you did. You started getting in trouble with when your heart started going in the wrong direction. Jesus didn't come into the world because we had some bad habits that need to be corrected. Jesus came into the world because you and I have wicked hearts that are beyond our willpower to reform. Do you agree with that? Yeah, that doesn't get a real hearty amen, does it? That's, that's more of an oh me. Jesus did not come because we needed a little help. That, that's when we really get in trouble, isn't it? When we just think we just need a little help from Jesus so we can learn to be better. We don't need a little help. We need new hearts. We have hearts that are so utterly wicked apart from him that they cannot be reformed. Jesus did not come to just teach us to learn some better habits. And yet so many times it feels like that's about all the church has to offer. We're going to get you around some good people and help you start acting more like good people, right? I mean, don't you, didn't you just ever feel like that in coming to church? That it's like maybe some of this goodness is going to rub off and it really doesn't work that way. My heart is more wicked than your goodness could possibly rub off me on me and change me to conform to that. Jesus came because your company isn't enough for me. I need somebody who can touch me at the level of my heart. Now, this week has certainly been an unforgettable week. Wouldn't you agree with that? Whether you're going, woohoo or oh me, you know. And it's like half of America is cheering and half of it's groaning and crying and some of it's rioting and, and protesting. It's been an unforgettable week. And I want to just pause. I, I'm, trust me, I'm going to connect the dots in just a minute. But I want to pause and just sort of say a word about where we are and how it relates to what we're talking about today. For half of America, your candidate got elected and great days are ahead because of who our next president is going to be. And is seems as always the case every four years, half of America is in mourning and these are the most terrible days because the opposition candidate got elected and... And we, we do this dance every four years, but it seems like we're escalating the level of emotional response with every new person who's elected. And, and I kind of understand that because it's like the personalities of the people involved seem to get bigger and more controversial. And so, I mean, people are just either thrilled to death because salvation has come are just scared out of their minds that the sky is falling and we're about to splinter apart as a nation and, and all is going to be lost. And I just want to remind you again of a couple of things. For one, you and I have no reason to despair. I was talking to somebody about this in the gym this week who's not a believer and just 
listening to some other people's thoughts on this. And when they ask for mine, I just said real simply, from the heart, Jesus is my king, so I can live with a lot of different presidents. That's not going to upset me. When Jesus is your king, you know, you don't have to fret so much about who's going to be president. He's subject to the king. The president's powerful, but his power is limited. The king's power is unlimited. And so as long as Jesus is our king, we can live through all kinds of other things in terms of who's in Congress or who's in the White House. So whether you're thrilled about it or disappointed about it, don't live like people who have no hope. We know the one who's in control, and he is as much in control today as he was before this election. So there's, there's not real reason to fret over one election or another. But beyond that, I just want to remind us of something that's very much tied to the message today. And it is that we need to step back and recognize how incredibly powerless the government is to address the fundamental problems that we have. Now what I'm saying isn't a cause for despair. If anything, it's a message of empowerment for us. It's a message of hope that elevates the importance of what we do, who we are as believers and as the church. Do you ever just stop to think how utterly powerless the government is to touch the deepest problems that exist in our culture today? Virtually impotent in that regard. They, they cannot touch what is wrong. I mean, when we look around today and it's like, oh my goodness, the country's out of control right now. People rioting in the streets. There, there's violence and all of these huge problems of, of poverty and, and all kinds of needs and issues that, that stem from that. What, you know, candidate A, what are you going to do? Candidate B, what are you going to do? Hadn't you figured it out after listening to them for the last 18 months? They're not going to do anything that ultimately will fix the problem. And it's not because we nominated the wrong two people. It is because government cannot fix what is broken. It is a problem of the heart. We're trying to fix heart problems with governmental solutions. It will never work. I'll just give a, a prime example to you. And I, I am not, listen, I'm not picking on anybody when I say what I'm about to say. What I am about to say is a reflection of the fact that we, as Americans of all colors, shapes, and sizes, have a major problem. So hear me say that very clearly, but I'm also fixing to talk straight. As one example, in America today, this is current, 29% of all white babies born in America this year, 29% will be born into homes where there is only one parent. Mom and dad are not married. They're going to be raised by one parent. Nearly three in ten. If a baby is Hispanic, the number jumps up to 53%. More than half of all Hispanic babies born in America, they're growing up in one-parent households. And that's not even the worst news. African-American babies, 72% born today are born to a mom where no dad is present. And a completely separate set of statistics in case we're going, well, maybe dad's just kind of come along a little later on in the story. For everyone that comes into the picture, one checks out. 72% are raised all the way up in a home where only one parent is present. Listen, I'm not talking down to anybody. We've got plenty of single parents in our church, and God bless you. There's, there aren't many jobs on earth as tough as what you're doing to do, do the work of being both mom and dad. Nobody is condemning you for that. I am simply saying this to make a point. 
the world has yet to come to grips with the devastating effects that this alone will have on a culture, on a society. When there is no dad present in the home for massive numbers of children, first of all, it creates in most instances terrible economic oppression. Poverty becomes an instant problem for most single parents. And so you've got this gigantic issue and then all kinds of other things that spring off from this because there's not the strong male example. Oftentimes discipline is a real difficulty when dad isn't present. I mean, it doesn't take a great deal of imagination and you don't have to have a degree in psychology to begin to understand when a child does not have dad present at all. He's not helping financially. He's not helping with discipline. He's not leading by example. When there is no daddy present, what comes from that so much of the time is broken in more ways than you want to imagine or begin to enumerate. And what you wind up with is a culture of broken people where lawlessness and ungodliness become the norm. I mean, can you imagine growing up in an environment where it's not just your family, but where virtually everybody that you know, there is no nuclear family. There is no mom and dad and us kids, and we've got these warm, fond memories where we've bonded and we're close and we know the kind of example that we want to follow. That's not even a part of the equation at all. And so you grow up into an adult who has a completely different set of values. You're wired differently. You don't begin to comprehend the rules that should apply in your life. And thoughts of purity and godliness just oftentimes are not even a part of the equation. How does government begin to help with that? They can't. They're absolutely powerless. The best that government can do is to throw some money at it and say, we're going to try and make sure through things like welfare and food stamps and government housing that you at least have a mediocre to poor roof over your head and you don't starve to death. And beyond that, about all that government can do is to say, we're going to make sure that there is a police force and that there are prisons in place so that when your behavior gets so out of control that you can't live in society with us, we'll have a place to send you away. I want to tell you, you're not going to be able to build enough prisons to house the level of problem that we're going to have in the future if we can't begin to address the real problem. You see, it's problems of the heart. Jesus was talking straight when he said all of the things that are wrong, violence and murder and slander, adultery, sexual acting out, all of these things. He said this comes from the heart and government doesn't touch the heart. I'm not being anti-government in what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we have the only answer for these problems. The church has the only solution. People's hearts have got to be changed. Because if things are just left to run their course, do you want to know what happens to 29% and 53% and 72% of kids who come up in those kinds of environments? You know what's going to happen to the vast majority of them. They're going to repeat what they've seen modeled. And what they have seen modeled is that dads don't have to be dads. Dads use their sexuality to mark their territory like a bunch of dogs marking the neighborhood. You know that's right. They'll go around seeing how many women that they can have sex with, with no strings attached. It's like, I, I know I'm going to live in poverty, 
So, you know, my legacy isn't going to be what I've ever owned or ever accomplished. So the next best thing I can do is I can just make a bunch of babies. And the more women I can make babies with, the more I can feel like I have a legacy. I've done something, but I can do this in a way where there's, there's no line of responsibility. And so I can do it with no financial responsibility. I don't have to do any of the parenting. I don't have to do any of the hard stuff. The baby's mama can be responsible for all of that. And what do you think that's going to produce? It's going to produce something that no president and no Congress and no state legislature can do anything to reform. It's just going to create more and more cycles of generations of of just brokenness that just multiply. Unless something or someone comes along to to begin to address this at the level of the human heart. You can't reform this with a program. So how on earth do you begin to deal with this? How do you change this cycle? Jesus understood what the fundamental problem is. He understood the heart of how you change anything like this. You've got to offer a better reward. You know, do you ever look at bad behavior, whether it's with your kids or or with the people that you see in the news, and go, why do they do that? Why do they act like that? I mean, I I certainly do that. I do that with my own family. Why would you repeat this bad behavior? Don't you see the destructive consequences of that? Why are you doing this again and again? And yet we all know the answer to the question. The reason that behavior is being repeated is because there's a payoff. Any bad behavior that gets repeated over and over, it gets repeated because it gets rewarded. You get that, don't you? For, for some of us, we just don't sit around and think about these things, so I want to make you have to think about this today. Bad behavior that gets repeated only gets repeated because it gets rewarded. And you may say, well, how does the bad behavior you just described get rewarded? Isn't that obvious? A man... Gets to be a father as many times as he wants to. He gets to have sex with as many women as he wants to. And there are no responsibilities that go with it. He gets to feel good about, I've made all these children. And I can go in and be daddy for as long as it's fun. For an hour or a day. And then I get to leave it behind when it needs its diaper changed or when the hard stuff needs to be done. Don't you see the payoff in that? You get to have the fun and no responsibility. There's a payoff in that. Bad behavior, there's always a payoff if it's being repeated. The writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 11, there's pleasure in sin for a season. How many of you have been there? That you, Yes! There, there is pleasure for a season while we're doing the sinful thing. It has its payoff. So how do you ever change that? You've got to have a better payoff for better behavior. Are you with me? This isn't my solution. God created us this way. Do you understand that in God's whole scheme of things, He created it this way? God designed us with a a reward and punishment mindset about things. That we're going to run to wherever there is the greatest reward. You understand God wired that into you. I think sometimes we're sort of like, I don't know brainwashed to think, no, if we're really spiritual, we just do it because it's good. That's not how God designed you. You don't have a heart that runs toward good. You've got a heart just like mine. We run towards whatever is comfortable, towards whatever feels good and is the easiest. We don't run toward what is good just because it's good. We need a reward. 
God understands that. That's why in his system, he has always established these principles. Blessing and reward follows obedience. Suffering follows disobedience. That's God's design. That's God's universe. It's true everywhere. Wherever God puts a law in place, it rewards compliance and obedience and it punishes disobedience. If you question that, we'll get out the ladder and let you climb up on the roof and put it to a test. You see, the law of gravity is a blessing from God. It keeps us from just floating around, disconnected from everyone and everything. Can you imagine if you had a space shuttle experience through all of your life? How would you accomplish anything? Gravity is a good thing. If you cooperate with it, it's a good thing. But if you work against that, if you go up on the roof and you say, I don't like the law of gravity, and you step out, what's going to happen? We're going to be out there praying for the resurrection of the dead. Because gravity is going to hurt you. Blessing and reward accompany obedience and compliance. Where you learn, if you're a farmer, if you learn to comply with the seasons that God's put in place, you'll have a harvest that's so abundant. But if you work against that, your harvest is always going to be killed. Right? You work against the seasons. God has put order in everything. He's teaching us that reward follows when we get in line with all that he has ordained. What we need is a greater reward for a different way of living. And that's what Jesus has offered. God blesses those who are pure in heart. For they shall see God. Okay, I hadn't always been a preacher and I don't always think like a preacher. So I can just tell you I get it. That in the real world, in real life, it is very tempting to look at a passage like this. And if we were really honest in this room today, to go, so what? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So everybody who's chasing after the impure desires of their hearts, the thing that's going to change them is say, oh, but if you would change your heart, you could see God. If we're really honest, a lot of us would go, and what difference would that make? Isn't that the truth? Isn't there a part of you that kind of feels like, isn't that a little theoretical, a little pie in the sky? That's going to make such a big difference. Let's unpack what Jesus has promised there. Because Jesus is offering a different payoff. Jesus is offering a greater payoff. Those who are pure in heart, those who choose not to go the easy route, the route of no responsibility, those who choose a different path, the path of purity, here's the payoff. You will see God. What is that about? We're tempted to go, well, surely that's just the afterlife. If you don't follow God, you burn in hell, so there's the, the punishment. If you obey God and have a pure heart, you go to heaven and you see God. Is that what he's talking about? No, he's really not. Jesus is talking about this life. The pure in heart will see God. What does that really mean? I just want to mention three things to you to hopefully get a handle on the, the payoff that he's giving us here. And the first is this. That, that to see God means to be admitted into God's presence. You know, in Exodus we get the account of how Moses keeps going into Pharaoh's presence to, to plead for the people to be released. And Pharaoh finally just gets fed up with the whole exchange. And, and he finally says to Moses, get out of here. Don't come again. The next time you see me, you're going to die. You're never going to get to draw into my presence again. I think some of us feel like God looks at us that way. Like, you know, you're sinful, you're dirty, you're impure, so stay out of my presence. That's not how God feels about you if you're a child of his. 
to see God means literally that you get to come into his presence. You know, we'll get sick and say, I need to see the doctor. And we all understand that when we say that, we don't just mean I need to get close enough that I can eyeball him like I'm sitting here looking, standing here looking at you. No, what do you mean when you say you want to see the doctor? You mean, I, I want a personal exchange with a doctor that is going to benefit me at my point of need, right? We want to be able to walk away and say, Ooh, I am so glad that I got to see the doctor because I knew I was feeling bad, but I didn't know what was going on. And he understood, and he dealt with the problem, and now I feel so much better, all because I got to see the doctor. The person who gets to see God doesn't get to see him from afar just by reading the Bible or going to church. You get to have a personal encounter with God that truly benefits you in bigger ways than going to the doctor would benefit a sick person. It is to communicate something, to transmit something greatly beneficial to you at your point of need because you have had a personal, very direct encounter with God. To see God also, secondly, means to just be overwhelmed by His glory because we encounter His holiness. Have you ever had an experience like that before? I don't just mean the normal church experience of, oh, it was so good I raised my hands. We've all had sweet moments like that. I don't mean that at all. I mean the kind where I know the Spirit of Christ is always present with us when we worship, but sometimes He is way more present. How do you explain that, by the way? I mean, He's a person, and you want to say, the person is either there or He's not. It's just different with God. The Holy Spirit is here today, but I have been in worship in times where the Spirit of God would come so powerfully. I mean, you could cut it with a knife. It's so thick. The conviction of sin and the the hunger for holiness and just the intimacy of that encounter is just so real. I'm reminded of the end of the Job story where, I mean, you know all that Job had gone through and he finally just got kind of fed up with the whole thing and he's going to call God to account you know toward the very very end of the book and he just tells God what he really thinks and asks God is the questions that he wants to ask and then God shows up and he responds to Job and it's like trying to drink water out of a fire hydrant it's so overpowering in response to that Job says in the past I only knew what others had told me but now I have seen you with my own eyes and I repent I'm changed because of of your glorious presence. I know some of the times when His glory has most overwhelmed me. I've just found myself again and again just face on the floor. Just in repentance and worship because the normal stuff that we would do in worship doesn't even seem to fit because the glory of God has come. Those who get to see God experience His greatness at a level that's really hard to put into words. We get a glimpse of God's glory, sort of pale reflections of that, when we're out in nature and we see, you know, like the, the glory of the mountains or the power of the, of the surging seas or, or just the, the force and, of thunder and lightning and in a storm. All of those things are dim reflections of the greatness and the glory of God. But the scripture reminds us, that the reality behind those things is so much greater. And there is a time coming when we'll live in His presence. The kind of glory that John writes about in Revelation 21 when he says of the new Jerusalem, and the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb, that is Jesus, is its light. And then the third thing that 
that seeing God means is, is to truly be comforted and helped by God's grace. Uh, the psalmist again and again cry out for this. David in Psalm 27 says this, Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek His face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. When we live in the kind of relationship where God lets us see Him, be near Him, there's something so sweet and gracious and helpful about that. It's not an angry God who's always here to take us to the woodshed and wear us out. He is a loving Father who is so present with us. David just said, my heart longs for this. My heart keeps saying, seek His face, God. I do. I want to see Your face. I want to be near You because in Your presence, there's real help. There's real comfort. There's real instruction. Jesus is saying, this is the payoff. The pure in heart get to experience this at a totally different level. So then that begs the question, all right, so what does it mean to be pure in heart and how do we get in on that? Just two pretty straightforward things that I'll say that the scriptures sum up about what it means to be pure in heart. First of all, it means to submit all of our thoughts, words, and actions to the Lordship of Jesus. It doesn't mean that you'll live a life of perfection, but it does mean that you do your dead level best to surrender all of what comes from you to him. What you think, what you say, and what you do. That Jesus gets to be Lord over all that. In Psalm 24, David says, Who may climb the mountain of the Lord? And he's talking about who gets to be in God's presence. Who gets to see the face of God and be near God? Who may stand in this holy place? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure. Who do not worship idols and never tell lies. It's a reminder that the concept of purity, it's a 100% concept. Through and through. It doesn't leave room for things like lying and deceit. I mean, when we say purity, we we quickly run to thoughts of sexual purity, don't we? I mean, that that seems to be where our minds want to run. Isn't this what what it's all about? It's about keeping your pants zipped. No, purity is about far, far more than that. And David reminds us, that what comes from our mouths is a huge part of purity. Now he says that's totally tied to your heart. But he said the heart of the pure doesn't allow for a life of deception. And I would dare say that while sexual acting out is epidemic in our culture today, it's not as epidemic as deceit is. We have become a culture where lying is the norm. We've talked about this before. (laughs) If you can believe what people say in surveys... The average man in America tells three lies a day. The average woman tells six lies a day. But who knows what you can trust about that? They already lie three and six times a day. So who knows what the real number is? I mean, seriously. Three times a day? Six times a day? I mean, do you just realize if that's the case... Did I just say that backwards? Did I just say women lied more? I'm sorry. I said it... Yeah, you, the ladies all knew that that was a lie. I, I was lying. Sorry about that. The average man lies six times a day. The average lady three times. See, I can't even speak the truth when I'm preaching there. So, But you just realize this has just become the norm. We just tell the truth when it's convenient. And, and I mean, we kind of chuckle about it. But 
this is disturbing when you think about it. And I, I suspect you're like me. My observation is I can't tell the difference between the church and the world when it comes to things like this. I cannot tell the difference. In my experience, Christians are just as willing to freely lie about stuff and totally feel okay with it. Well, I just lied because I didn't want to hurt their feelings. I just said that because I didn't want them to think bad of me. As if that was a pass or something. Deceit is the, the ultimate expression of being double-minded. I, I want two things at the same time. I want to be able to live one way, and I want to be able to have you think of me in a totally different way, right? I mean, isn't that why we lie? I lie because I want you to like me. I want you to think good about me, but I don't want to actually have to live up to that reputation. I want to be able to live however is convenient for me. So deceit becomes a doorway. So the writer of Psalms says, look, when it comes to a heart that's pure, realize it's not just about your sexuality. It's about the whole of who you are. And a life of duplicity won't cut it. We have to surrender everything we say and think and do to the Lordship of Jesus. In James, James says, I'm, actually I'm jumping ahead, excuse me. The second part of that is that it means to love Jesus more than anyone or anything else. And James drives that home when he says, You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? Come close to God and God will come close to you. That's such a reassuring line, isn't it? To know that when you turn toward God and when you seek Him, God's always ready to seek you. God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Everybody say, purify your hearts. Purify your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. If you want to get to the heart of what purity is all about, this is it. Instead of saying, well, I want one foot clearly in this world living for what this world says is good and whatever's comfortable and fun and one foot firmly planted in the kingdom of God doing what pleases God. I mean, truthfully, that's where most Christians seem to, to live our lives. One foot planted on either side of the line. Purity of heart is about seeking one thing. Soren Kierkegaard wrote a book entitled Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. What is that one thing? It's just this. You want to know how to be pure in heart? you just got to learn to love Jesus more than anything else in this life. Because when you get down to it, every time we settle for something that's not the will of God, the root of the problem is just, I don't love Jesus enough. I mean, isn't that it? Would I do that if I truly loved Jesus enough? Would I be willing to be unfaithful to him in this area if I loved him enough? Purity of heart is to decide more than I love anything in the world I fall in love with Jesus. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.5, The purpose of my instructions is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. The aim of the person who's pure in heart is to just always be aligned with the truth of God and to always seek to magnify the worth and greatness of God in all situations. Just loving Jesus more than anything else. And so the final question for the day is how are these two things bound together? How does this work? Because if we take a real good look at ourselves in the mirror, I don't think purity is the word that we walk away wanting to describe ourselves with most of the time, is it? I mean, is it for you? On our own, that's not where we're, we're living most of the time. So Jesus gives us a partial answer. How do we get there? He's, you know, he says, 
uh, through his word in Hebrews 12:14. Anyone whose life isn't holy will never see the Lord. And we could, most of us could probably stop there and go, well, I'm done then. <laughs> I'm doomed. If you've got to be holy and pure to see the Lord, I'm never going to see the Lord. You've got to kill me before I ever see the Lord. Well, thankfully, Jesus has made a way. The disciples felt the futility of that thought. And they asked the question, Lord, how on earth can anybody be saved then? How does anybody get this? And Jesus responded in Matthew 19, 25 and 26 by saying, With man, this would be impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Peter says in Acts 15, 9, To God, those people who... Those people are not different from us. He's talking about the Gentiles who were considered the filthiest pagans out there. He says, to God, even those people are no different from us when they believed. Everybody say believed. When they believed, he made their hearts what? How do you become pure? By Peter's words. How do you become pure? Belief. It's the same word in Greek as faith. Faith is how your heart initially is made pure. Now there's more to it than this in the, in the long run for us. But this is how an impure person becomes pure. You come to Christ in faith. And you place your trust in Him. And there is so much yuck and muck, you could never clean it all out. There is just no way to do it. We're too filthy to do God brought an image back to mind for me that maybe will will help with this picture when you think about apart from Christ how dirty you are and how impossible it is to clean up your act the Lord just reminded me of the dirtiest day of my life I mean physically the dirtiest day of my life years ago when I was a student pastor in Tuscaloosa a friend of mine who was a student pastor in another church I don't know how in the world he got the church to sign off on this he probably got in so much trouble after the fact but he came up with the idea of doing a fundraiser that would bring in all the other churches for a volleyball tournament but he wanted to do a special kind so he had a mud volleyball tournament on the grounds of the church and so they brought in a backhoe and they dug out a pit that was like you know this deep in just red clay red rust-colored dirt, and then they brought in the fire department with their fire hoses, and they filled this pit to about 15 or 18 inches deep in water that was just the, the reddest, rust-colored, nastiest mud pit you've ever seen, and then they invited us to bring in teenagers from all over the city and have an all-day mud volleyball tournament out there. Now, I will say, as an adult who got to take part in that, for a while, it was some of the most fun I've ever had. Because you just get out there, and, and with that much water out there, you can just lay out for the ball, and it's not going to hurt you because, you know, you've got the water to brace your fall. So, like, to begin with, it's just so much fun to get dirtier than your mama ever let you get dirty when you were growing up. But as the day goes on, you go from being pretty nasty, and it's sort of fun being nasty, and there's such a spiritual parallel in this. But it's like getting in the mud just felt so good to begin with. Playing in the mud felt like so much fun. But the longer that you played and the more times that you laid out, you went from just being kind of dirty to the point where you were absolutely covered in filth from the top of your head to the soles of your feet where there wasn't one inch of you that wasn't covered in mud. Now the bad part about that is it starts getting in places you didn't want it to get into. It's in your ears, it's up your nose, it's in your mouth, and worst of all, it's in your eyes. 
It's the only time I've ever been in quite that predicament before. There isn't one inch of clean clothing or clean body part that you can begin to get all this dirt and trash and mud out of your eyes. And suddenly what had been fun for a season is absolute pain and misery. Sounds parallel to something else I've experienced in life. It's fun to get in the mud for a while. But there's going to come a time when the fun becomes a source of pain and you are powerless to get rid of it because you are completely wrapped up in it. And so, I mean, we get to the point where it's like you you just have got so much mud in your eyes and in your mouth and all. You're just like, okay, forget this game. I don't really care who wins. I just need to be out of this. Have you ever been there spiritually? I just can't stay where I am. I've made myself miserable. Now, thankfully, Rob, my friend, he had thought ahead and he was prepared. Because, I mean, we were so filthy. There is no way you could have, like, gone in the church to clean yourself. Not that you could have. I mean, like, what are you going to do? Go to the water fountain and, like, try and splash a little water? I mean, you, you are hopelessly filthy. And going, nobody could possibly get in their car. You're just beyond any hope at that point. His solution was perfect. He kept the fire department there. George is here, Mr. Fireman. You know what that looked like. They pulled out the, I mean, the big hoss daddy fire hose. Now, I've been under waterfalls and all kinds of places. I've never been hit with water like we were that day by the fire department, the Tuscaloosa Fire Department. They would just get up there, brace, and hose us down. I mean, it would nearly knock you down. But the beauty of that was, when you got through standing in front of that fireman's hose, it knocked the mud off. Now, your clothes had to be... Th- we had to throw every stitch of clothing away. You couldn't do anything about it. Again, there is a spiritual parallel to this. That there's some stuff in your life that's beyond redeeming. It's got to be abandoned. You gotta, if you're going to live a life of purity, there's some clothes got to be stripped off and thrown away and never put back on again. And that's our responsibility. And you see, purity works this way. The fire department... They were responsible for hosing us down from head to toe. And we walked in as filthy as a human being can be. And we walked out of that hose suddenly clean in a moment of time. That's a picture of what the blood of Jesus will do when we respond in faith to him. It will do what you cannot do for yourself. You are beyond cleaning up your own act. And the blood of Jesus works like a fireman's hose to take off what you can't take off. But there's also another component We all had to go home and strip off the dirty stuff that was going to be our choice, whether it ever put back on again or not. You see, the blood of Jesus makes you pure, but it's going to take your choices day after day to cooperate with the work of God's Spirit in your life to live a life of purity. Jesus makes you pure and he enables you to begin to live a different kind of life. But do you realize how there's both a once and for all but also a moment by moment component to living a life of purity? Jesus strips everything away that had made you impure and he makes you clean and new in the sight of God. But then you and I have to make choices. The Spirit of God lives in me now. And I have the power to tell the truth when my nature wants to lie. I have the power to guard my thoughts when my nature is to want to look somewhere or think somewhere or go somewhere that I don't have any business going. We have to choose to walk in purity. That's why the scriptures, the New Testament is full of instructions like Paul says in Ephesians 5. But among you, there must not be even a hint 
of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place but rather thanksgiving. Do you get which half of the equation Paul's addressing now? You see, good works don't get you right with God. You've got to go in front of the fireman's hose. The blood of Jesus has to cover you in the moment that you place your faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross. He washes you clean. But from that moment forward, again and again, you've got to make choices. I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to make room for the flesh. There's not room for impurity and me to be able to live the kind of life where I get to live in God's presence and enjoy the benefits of that. I've got to make choices to live a life of purity. And the payoff for that is so incredible. I get to live in the presence of God and enjoy all the benefits of seeing God and experiencing the glory of God and what He's doing. But I've got to cooperate with the grace of God in my life. Would you join me as we bow together and turn to the Lord in prayer? I said at the beginning that it would be very tempting to process what we'll talk about today at a head level and not let it work down to a heart level. So here's a moment that I really want us to pause and consider our own hearts. When it comes to the matter of personal purity, is the Holy Spirit putting His finger on an area of your life where you realize this isn't surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus? This is an area of brokenness and filth that I've just allowed. And I need desperately for that to be changed. Now, I want to remind you that the beginning point is always to go back to Jesus with that. It always needs to come back beneath the fireman's hose. It needs to be put under the blood. Would you begin today, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you of an area of impurity in your life, this isn't about trying to make you feel bad. It's about having it put right. Would you just confess that to God right now in your heart? Whatever it is. Would you just say, oh God, I need your forgiveness. And I thank you that the blood of Jesus covers that. And I'm asking you now to forgive me. And to give me a pure heart and a different set of desires. Would you ask God to give you the strength to walk And speak and think differently in that area of your life. Now it may be that the thing that that God put his finger on in your life today was a realization that the whole concept of loving Jesus ahead of everything else just isn't you. It's not where you are. And if that's the case, if you're just being honest and going, I I get that. I, I love some other things more than I love Jesus. And I don't know what to do about that. Why don't you just tell God that, that very thing? Why don't you be honest enough to say, God, I realize I've got a problem at the level of my wants. I want some other things more than I want to be right with you. There's a part of my heart that wants to be close to you and to enjoy the blessings, but I realize I'm broken at, broken at the level of what I desire. Would you change me? And would you help me to begin to want you more than I want anything else? Maybe you're at the point that you're ready for a real change in your life and you need to begin a love relationship with Jesus. If that's the case, how about just in your heart praying a simple prayer with me that says, Jesus, I know you love me. I know that you died for me. And I'm asking you to come now live in me. 
Would you please forgive my sins? And would you wash me clean? Would you give me a clean slate and the power to live a different life? Would you take away my guilt and shame? And would you give me the courage and strength to live to please you? Thank you for loving and forgiving me. God, thank you for your faithfulness to hear our prayers, but not just to hear them. Thank you for faithfully answering our prayers. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.